before Cody's lesson, if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 26. That's Genesis 26, starting in verse 1. And there was a famine in the land beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went in unto Abimelech, king of the Philistines, unto Gerar. And the Lord appeared unto him and said, Go not down unto Egypt, dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee, and will bless thee, and for unto thee and unto thy seed I will give all these countries. And I will perform the oath I swear unto Abraham thy father. And I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven. And will give unto thee, unto thy seed, all these countries, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Good morning to all. It is great to be here. As always, and we are thankful to God for the opportunity to worship this morning, I invite your attention to the book of Genesis, chapter uh, 26. That's where we'll be studying, at least in some portion this morning. But actually, I want to begin in Genesis, chapter 12. If you'd like to open your Bibles to Genesis, chapter 12, we're introduced to Abraham in Genesis, chapter 12. But at this point, his name, of course, was Abram. We're told about the promise that God had made to him in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Abram, I want you to leave the land of your fathers, and I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. And if you'll do this, God said, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great, and you're going to be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Of course, we recognize that that promise ultimately is pointing to Jesus Christ coming into the world of Abraham's seed. But I want you to note that in Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3, whenever God reveals this incredible promise to Abraham, it's not long until we learn about one of Abraham's failures. In fact, the very next section in this chapter, Genesis chapter 12, records for us an occasion in which Abraham, or Abram as his name was at this point, experiences a famine. And because of that famine, he travels down to Egypt. And arriving in Egypt, he recognizes that his wife is a very beautiful woman to look upon, and he becomes afraid. He is afraid that because of his wife's beauty, the men of Egypt will kill him in order to have her for themselves. And so he lies about her. He says that she is his sister instead of his wife. And you'll notice in Genesis chapter 20 that Abraham did the same thing again to Abimelech. Now, thankfully, these two events are not the events that define the totality of Abraham's life. We know Abraham as being a godly man and the father of the faithful. Romans chapter 4 and verse number 12 And these accounts of his imperfections, I would suggest, 
they actually help us to appreciate the spiritual growth and maturity on the part of Abraham that we see throughout the course of his life. We start in Genesis chapter 12. God makes a promise. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to protect you. And then the next section, Abraham, because of fear, sins. But then when we fast forward to the end of Abraham's life, we see a man like who is described in Hebrews chapter 11 for faith or because of faith offered his son Isaac upon the altar Uh, supposing that God was able to raise him from the dead. We see the imperfections of Abraham, and that helps us to appreciate how he grew and how he matured, just like each and every one of us will grow and will mature throughout the course of our lives. But this lesson is not about Abraham in particular. This lesson actually is about Isaac. I want you to notice something about Genesis chapter 26, if you haven't noticed it already. The context that Mark read for us just a moment ago, listen to what the Bible says. And listen for the connections between Isaac and Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 26. The Bible says there was a famine in the land beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar, and then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I tell you, dwell in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father, and I will multiply your descendants, Uh, make your descendants rather multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice. But look at verse 7. Isaac dwelt in Gerar, verse 6, and the men of the place asked about his wife, and he said, She's my sister, for he was afraid to say, She's my wife, because he thought, Lest the men of the place will kill me for Rebekah, because she is beautiful to behold. And so now it came to pass, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw, and there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife, and Abimelech called Isaac and said, Quite obviously, she is your wife, so how could you say she's my sister? And Isaac said, Because I said, lest I die on her account. And Abimelech said, what is this that you've done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt on all of us. So Abimelech charged all the people saying, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now, as you think about Isaac and you think about Abraham, it's quite obvious, isn't it, from the two passages, Genesis 12 and Genesis chapter 26, that Isaac and his father Abraham committed the same transgression in almost identical circumstances. Both experienced a famine. Both left their home because of that famine. Both were afraid that they would be killed because of their wives' beauty, and both lied about it, and then both of them were caught. If you take a step back for just a moment and you look at the lives of Abraham and Isaac and even the life of Jacob you will notice that there is a great difference between these three men. Isaac, for example, is described in Genesis 24, verse number 63, as someone who was quiet and meditative. We never see, like with Abraham and like with Jacob, whenever Isaac has a confrontation with his enemies, we never read anything about Isaac going to war or battle with those enemies. Instead, Isaac tended to just pack up and leave instead of confronting them. 
There's only a small amount of material in the book of Genesis and in the Bible as a whole that is dedicated to Isaac and a much greater amount of material dedicated to Abraham and dedicated to Jacob. And what's the point? The point is, although Isaac was Abraham's son and Jacob was Isaac's son, we have three men who are three patriarchs, three godly men. They're all related by blood, grandfather, father, grandson, and yet every one of them is unique. Every one of them is unique, and, 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 and though while every person is unique, every child is unique, in their own right, from their parents, there are still some areas in which children are identical. Again, look at Abraham and look at Isaac. They both found themselves in the same situation, committing the same transgression, two different places, uh, two different places but still the circumstances are basically the same. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 John says, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, these are the things that exist in the world. James said in James 1 and verse 14, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Now listen to this next part. For everyone or every man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust and enticed. I want you to stop for a moment and I want you to think about that statement, every man or everyone, and ask yourself, who does that involve? Who does it, who does it imply? And the answer is everyone. Parents, that means it includes your children. Grandparents, it includes your grandchildren. Those who are parents whose children have left the home already and you've maybe become grandparents, recognize that it doesn't matter how old you become or how old your children become, your children, your grandchildren, your even your great-grandchildren, they're all going to be looking to you and learning something from you and Every one of us, regardless of where we happen to be in life, whatever age we might happen to be, we all have to struggle with trial and with temptation and with the lust of the flesh and with the lust of the eyes and with the pride of life. Abraham and Isaac were two very different people, and yet they still struggled with the same things. Now what that tells me, what that tells all of us, is that when we consider our children and our grandchildren, when we consider the generations that come, we have to recognize that they are going to face the same kind of trials and the same kind of temptation and the same kind of challenges that we all face. So our job then as parents, our job is to prepare our children to be able to face those trials, to be able to deal with those temptations, to be able to navigate those difficult circumstances because they'll go through them just as we. So how do we do it? This morning I want to suggest just four uh, points for your consideration. Take that back there, five. Five points for your consideration that will help us to be able to prepare our children as they grow and as they deal with the same issues of life that every human being has dealt with since creation. Number one, and perhaps most importantly, bless them with a spiritual heritage. Bless them with a spiritual heritage. Think about Isaac for a moment. Obviously, we're reading about an occasion in Isaac's life which was not his, that wasn't his brightest moment. 
But like Abraham, this is not the one event that defines the totality of who Isaac is. And thanks to God for that because it reminds us that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the other men and women that we read about in the Bible were human beings just like the rest of us. And while they sought to be blameless and while they sought to be righteous and faithful to God, there were times in which they made mistakes, in which they sinned, just like the rest of us. And yet the mistakes that we make don't have to define who we are. That was extra. But I want you to think about Isaac and his faithfulness. And I want us to recognize that Isaac's faithfulness did not come into existence in a vacuum. In other words, Isaac was faithful to God, but Isaac was not the first one who was faithful to God. Isaac had a father and a mother who were godly and who were faithful to the Lord themselves. In fact, listen to what Genesis 26 verse 5 says. As God is speaking to Isaac, he is uh, repeating to him this covenant promise that he had made to his father Abraham. And he is applying this promise. He's telling Isaac that he's going to, to be the beneficiary. He's blessed with this same covenant. But I want you to look close at what verse 5 says. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws... Isaac, in Genesis chapter 26, after the death of his father, is blessed by the faithfulness that his father possessed in his lifetime. Go back a few chapters to Genesis chapter 18 and listen to what verse 19 says about Abraham. This is one of those passages that has always been underlined in my mind with exclamation points. It is an incredible passage. This is God speaking about Abraham, and I want you to listen to what God says about Abraham. Genesis 18, 19, he says, For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Stop for a moment and let the gravity of that statement sink in. The Lord, the angel of the Lord is saying of Abraham, I know him. I know his faithfulness. I know his character. And here's what I know about him. I know that he is going to raise his children right and that he is going to have and he is going to direct a righteous and just household. I know The character of Abraham, it is maybe the greatest compliment that could ever be given to a person. I know him, and I know the kind of person that he is, and I know that he's righteous, and I know that he's just. And what I'm suggesting to you this morning as we talk about blessing our children with a spiritual heritage is that a large part of the reason why Isaac was righteous and why he was faithful to God is because he was raised by a man who was faithful to God. And that spiritual heritage was passed on to him. The best thing that we can do for our children is be godly parents. There are all kinds of opportunities that we can provide them in this world. We can provide them with academic opportunities. We can provide them with athletic opportunities. We can take them on vacations. We can buy them things, material things. We can put them in the absolute best position that we can in order for them to succeed in this life. But the single most important thing that we could ever do for them, regardless of all of the peripheral matters, the most important thing is to be godly parents. Joshua said in Joshua 24 and verse 15, As for me and my house... 
We will serve the Lord. And that ought to be the rallying cry, the motto, if you will, for every Christian household. Ephesians 6 and verse 4, fathers have the responsibility to bring their children up in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord. And we have passages in God's Word like 1 Kings chapter 9 and verse 4 in the Old Testament and 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5 in the New Testament where God will speak to a child and he will say, listen, your mother or your grandmother in the case of 2 Timothy 1 verse 5, your father in the case of 1 Kings 9 verse 4, they were diligent and they were faithful and righteous and listen, they taught you and they showed you, you remember their example and you follow it. Our responsibility as parents is to seek to give our children a solid foundation and an entire childhood of seeing what the structure on top of that foundation should look like. In other words, as our children grow up in our homes, we're working to teach them and to solidify, give them a foundation of faithfulness, to teach them about God and about what he requires. But then as they grow up on a daily basis, they need to see what a structure sitting on top of a godly foundation looks like in the structure that we're building as parents in the home. We ought to bless our children with a spiritual heritage. We ought to to give them a foundation of faithfulness and give them the tools that they need in order to succeed in righteousness. That's the most important thing that we could ever do for them. Now, in a more practical way, here's a second thing to consider. Number two, we're trying to prepare our children to face the challenges of life. We need to look for teachable moments. We need to look for teachable moments. And we don't have the time to read all of these passages this morning. We'll read one or two, but I do want to just give them to you anyway so that you can maybe write them down in your notes. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 9. Listen to what God told the children of Israel. Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget these things that your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. And listen to this. Teach them to your children and to your grandchildren. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6 and 7, a passage that we're very familiar with. God says again, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, verse 4. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your might, verse 5. And these words which I command you today will be in your heart. You will teach them diligently to your children and will talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You will bind them as a sign on your hand, and they will be as frontlets between your eyes. You will write them on the doorposts of your house and upon the gates. He'll repeat the same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 18 and 19. He'll say it again in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 12 and 13. And in the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, the Apostle Paul will point out to Timothy the instruction that he received from his mother and his grandmother in the scriptures, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. What's the emphasis of all of these passages? The emphasis is parents are commanded to teach their children. Now we recognize that responsibility. I think we know that God says, I want you to teach your children, but sometimes we're left with questions logistically and practically as to how to do that. Well, we need to look for opportunities. We need to look for teachable moments. For example, children ask a lot of questions. 
And when children ask questions, we need to be prepared to give them answers. That's biblical. Look at Exodus chapter 12 for a moment. Notice something about Exodus chapter 12 and listen to what verse 26 and 27 says. Exodus chapter 12, verse 26 and 27. Notice notice the specificity of the language. We're talking about the Passover in Genesis 12, or excuse me, Exodus 12, and listen to verse 26. And it shall be when your children shall say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you will say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord. Look at the next page over, Exodus chapter 13, verse 14. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this? Then you shall say to him, by strength of hand, the Lord brought us up out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And again, he says it in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20 and 21, when your children will say unto you, what do these testimonies mean? What is the modern day equivalent of these three passages? The modern day equivalent is whenever our children ask us after worship service, why do we partake of the Lord's Supper every Sunday? What is that all about? We need to be able to tell them this is the reason why. Here's what God says about it. Here's why we partake of the Lord's Supper. Why do we believe that marriage is between a man and a woman? Why are we not watching that movie? Or why do we not make that choice? Or why do we not speak or dress that way? Why is it that we do what we do? Why are we who we are? You see, our responsibility as parents is to be able to answer those questions. And in order to answer them, that means, of course, that we have to know the answers ourselves. We need to know God's word ourselves. But we've got to explain to our children This is what it means. But of course we recognize that as our children age, those questions age with them. They become more mature. Many of them will be about things. Many of those questions are about things that tempt us and cause us to struggle. Again, going back to our original passage with Isaac and with Abraham, looking at the same kind of thing that they dealt with. Some questions as our children age are about things like lust, things like dating and marriage moral and ethical decisions that even teenagers as they grow begin to see and begin to reason through things uh, questions about priorities even the the big questions of the day let me ask you a question as we seek to navigate the issues of life the issues of the day things like racial issues and violence and loving your neighbor and a whole host of other things that our children and well all of us really we see them in our community we see them on the internet and the news and on social media and on television shows they're all around us are we taking the time to open up God's word together and to talk as a family to to say this is this is what God's word has to say about these things and we're Christians and so this is what we believe and why and here's how we're going to address those issues You see, that's what I mean when I say look for teachable moments. If you think about it, the world gives us teachable moments all the time because the world is always throwing challenges at us and trying to defeat us as a family of God. And so we take those opportunities as they're appropriate and we open up God's word and we teach our children, here's what's going on, here's what God says, and here's what we're going to do about it, and here's why. Look for teachable moments. Number three, we need to be setting the proper example. We've got to set a great example for our children. 
we ought to recognize that there is power in an example. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, be followers or imitators of me just as I follow or imitate Christ. Philippians chapter 3 verse 17, mark those and follow them because you have them as a good example. Let me ask you a question. If Isaac had been alive to see what Abraham had done in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 20, do you suppose Isaac would have done the same thing in Genesis chapter 26? Now, the Bible doesn't give us that answer. We're only speculating, of course, but I think it's at least an interesting thing to consider. Isaac wasn't alive in Genesis 12 and 20, but if he had been and he saw his father Abraham lie about his mother, Abraham's wife, and he saw Abraham get caught for it on both occasions, do you think at least that would have given Isaac a little bit of pause in Genesis chapter 26? Again, the world just keeps turning and there's nothing new under the sun. And so we think back on our childhood. We think back on our teenage years. We think back on our young married years. And we remember the struggles and the trials and temptations that we all went through. And then we recognize that we have children who are following the exact same course. They're going to struggle in their childhood and in their teenage and in their young married years with the same kinds of things that we struggled and maybe are struggling with. And so here's the question. As those little eyes and ears watch and listen to everything that we say and everything that we do, what kind of example are they absorbing from us as we navigate the trials and the challenges of life? Do you ever stop to think that our children's view of life is largely influenced by our own If we're constantly negative and if we constantly have a terrible outlook on life, there's a good chance that our children are going to view life in the same way. But more to the point, our children's view of marriage and family is going to be largely influenced on how they view ours. When our children leave home and when they start their own homes, when they enter into their own marriages, they have their own families, recognize that they're going to enter into that arrangement largely influenced by what they saw on display every day for the first 18 year, 18 plus years of their lives. We've got to be very mindful of the example that we're placing before our children. So as it relates to trial, what example are we setting for them? Are we worried and are we anxious all the time? Are we fighting with one another and arguing about how to solve the problem? Do our children see misplaced priorities? Do they see us trying to skirt around problems? Or is it totally the opposite? Do they see a mother and father who are prayerful and who are faithful to the Lord and to one another? A mother and father who are always talking and reasoning through the issues of life, always putting the Lord first. What example are we setting for our children? Number four, we need to be realistic with our children. We need to be realistic with our children. You see, we do our children no favors if we shelter them from from reality and pretend that problems are not real. Our children need to struggle a little bit. They need to learn how to deal with trial. We don't do them any favors when we hover over them like helicopters, protecting them from even the slightest little thing that might do them, challenge them in any way. Now, certainly that doesn't mean that we need to throw them into the deep end right away, but we do have to get them in the water and we have to teach them to swim so that eventually they will be able to go into the deep end. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. 
In this passage, as the Apostle Paul talks about temptation, I want you to think carefully about what he says as it applies to being realistic with our children. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, the Bible says this, No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape so that you might be able to bear it. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. Notice that that passage speaks about the reality of temptation. But that passage also speaks about the reality that God will give a way of escape with temptation. As we're teaching our children and as they're growing up, being realistic with them means saying, look, there are things in this world that are going to tempt you. There are things in this world that you're going to struggle with and you will struggle, however... God will give you the strength that you need in order to overcome. How about Proverbs chapter 4, verse 14 and 15? Remember, by the way, that the book of Proverbs is written from the perspective of a father who is teaching his son. And listen to what he says. Proverbs 4, verse 14. He says, do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it and pass on. Here's the question that I just want to ask with this passage. Does the Proverbs writer ever describe what the path of the wicked and what the way of the evil one is? Yes, he does. Just read the the whole book, particularly the chapters uh, 3, 4, and 5, and he'll say a lot about the path of wickedness and evil. It does no good if we speak in general and say children don't sin and we don't ever tell them what God says sin is. Now, obviously, we've got to be careful here because there are some things that are just age-appropriate and some things that are not. But the point is that we live in a world that is surrounded by wickedness, and our children need to be able to see it, and they need to be able to identify it. They need to be able to work through it, and they need to know what God has to say about it. We cannot shelter them from the reality of struggling in this world. Number last... We need to make sure in a general way that we give our children the tools that they need to succeed. And first and foremost, we need to make sure, going back to the previous point that we made about looking for teachable opportunities, we need to make sure that we are filling their minds and their hearts with the sword of the Spirit, which is, of course, the Word of God, Ephesians 6 and verse number 11. If you'll go and read the uh, items that are found in the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse following, I suggest that what you'll notice is that every component of the armor of God is tied in in some way with God's word. Now everyone I know would say, I want my children to be armed with the armor of God. It doesn't matter how old they are, whether we're talking about young children, teenagers, or kids that have left the house, we want them to be armed, but... The Bible says that we're not going to be able to do that apart from knowing and applying Scripture. Psalm 119 and verse number 11 says, Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And hiding the word in the heart most literally means to memorize it. That's what it means. The psalmist says, I am memorizing your word. Why? Because I don't want to sin. That's what's going to keep me from doing it. Proverbs chapter 3 Verse 21 through 23, listen to what the Proverbs writer says. Again, a father speaking to his son, and he says, My son, let them not depart from your eyes. What's he talking about? He's talking about the wisdom that God gives. 
Let that wisdom not depart from your eyes, but keep sound wisdom and discretion so that they will be life to your soul and grace to your neck. Then you will walk safely in the way and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. Yes, you will lie down and your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes for the Lord will be your confidence and he will keep your foot from being caught. And notice that all of those things are tied to what? This father teaching his son and emphasizing to him the importance of hiding God's word in his heart. If we want our children to be successful and to be able to deal with the struggles of life, we've got to give them the tools that they need in order to be successful. We've got to make sure that they know God's word and that they know what it means and they know how to use it. Make sure that we train them in prayer. Make sure that we show them on a daily basis what it means to be faithful to God. Teach them to love the Lord. Teach them to love one another. Teach them to love their wives, to to love their husbands, to love their children. Give them what they need to be successful. As we think about the lives and the example of these two men with whom we started, Abraham and Isaac, Abraham really is probably my favorite character study in Scripture, and the reason is because there's so much that's said about him, number one. But number two, you start at the beginning, and you see a man who is really struggling, and then by the time you get to the end of his life, you see someone who is a spiritual giant. And I think that every one of us can identify with him and with that in some way. We begin life as babes in Christ, spiritually speaking. We begin life as babes in Christ, and maybe we struggle all along, but the goal is that upward trajectory, and that's what we see in Abraham's life. We're going to make mistakes as people. We're going to make mistakes as parents and grandparents. Everyone does. But those mistakes are not the things that define who we are. What defines who we are is our faithfulness. And I'm confident that we all have a desire to that we all have a desire to, to build that and to foster that within our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and with every generation that will come. They're going to face the same trials and struggles that we do. Now it's up to us to equip them, to train them, and to make sure that they have what they need. We offer the Lord's invitation this morning. And it may be that there's someone here that has a desire to respond. Maybe you've not yet become a Christian. The Bible says that God wills that every person become a Christian and that Jesus died on the cross in order to make that a reality. We've got to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, John 8 and verse 24. We've got to repent of our sins. That's a change of mind that leads to a change of action, Luke 13, verse 3, verse 5. We've got to confess our faith. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, like the eunuch in Acts chapter 8. We've got to be immersed in water, baptized for the forgiveness of our sins, Acts 2 verse 38, so that the Lord will then add us to the church, Acts 2 verse 47. Are you ready to do that this morning? If you are, then we would love nothing more than to help you. Maybe though you are a Christian, and as you think about your life, maybe even your children, you think, you know, there are some areas in which I really need to improve. And I think if we're being honest, we could all say that to some degree. But maybe we can pray for you this morning to give you some encouragement. Maybe we can study and talk through some some issues biblically with you in order to help you be the parent and the person that God would have you to be. If you have need, come forward and let it be known while we stand and sing together.